Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high-quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Just bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie will connect you with local pros who match your specific needs. Or book a service instantly at an upfront price. So join the millions of homeowners who use Angie to care for their homes and get your next home service job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. Welcome to the Hang Time Podcast. I'm your host, Sekou Smith, here in the bubble on the NBA campus, uh, right outside of Orlando, technically, I think. I think we're in Lake Buena Vista, Florida, technically. But in the bubble, watching the finals. And today, we veer a little bit off the court to talk to somebody who's been integral in the planning, the production, and the execution of what's going on down here. Can't say enough about this guy and appreciate him coming on. Mark Tatum, the Deputy Commissioner and Chief Operating Officer of the NBA, is joining us on the Hang Time Podcast. Mark, uh, good afternoon. How are you? And uh, and how's bubble life treating you? <laughs> Seiku, first of all, thank you for having me on. Uh, I am doing great. I am excited that we are at this point. We still have a week to go um, at the latest here to be able to fulfill our goal of crowning a champion. And so I'm doing well and really enjoying uh, being in the bubble and watching some great basketball on the court. Game four last night, the last seven minutes, I literally have done this a couple games. I forgot we were in the bubble until about two minutes after the game was over and everything goes silent. Like there's no celebration in the stands. You know, people, people aren't milling around. You get caught up in the game. I'm wondering, is that the same sensation you've had? Like just getting so caught up in the drama of some of these games that you forget where we are. I agree. The, the, the basketball on the court has been amazing. It's been compelling. And last night's game was, was no different. You get caught up on what's happening there. And I also think that what we have done in the arena and on the broadcast of having the audio there, of having the game presentation that you would normally see in an NBA arena, I think those things help. I think mentally and psychologically, you are focused on the game, but when you hear those cues, those audio cues, those visual cues Mm -hmm. being in the arena, it does give you that sensation that you are in a full building, but then those moments when things go quiet, you realize (laughs) you're, you're one of only a couple of hundred people in the world who are watching that that live finals game, knowing that there are hundreds of millions of people around the world who are watching. Right. Yes. Yeah, it's, it's such a strange sensation. I'm, I'm trying to figure out how to explain it to people who aren't here when I get home, because I know they're going to be asking about it. Knowing how much work had to go in to the planning and all of the logistical planning, the health and safety components, the basketball, everything, how close has the bubble been to what you imagined it would be in the planning stages? It's a good question, Sekou. We worked with so many experts to plan this thing out. And I would say it's fairly close to what we had anticipated, but there were definitely things along the way that we hadn't anticipated, hadn't thought about, had to make adjustments. Things like, for example, people needing root canals and people needing to see eye doctors. You can plan for with the help of infectious disease specialists and virologists Mm -hmm. to create a model 
that will protect people and keep people safe. But then when you realize when people are here that life still happens here, people get injured, you know, people, like I said, need root canals and, and need dental work. And so, for example, we had to create opportunities. We brought in a mobile dental unit that sits here on campus and creating clean corridors. And you know, one of the other things too, that coming into the bubble and coming into the campus, we wanted to minimize, of course, the number of people who would enter into the campus, but we got some feedback along the way from some of the team staff that it was important for them to have guests here too, from a mental mm -hmm. wellness standpoint. And originally we had contemplated that, that only guests of players mm -hmm. would um, come onto campus, but we made that adjustment as we felt more and more comfortable that our protocols were working and that we could introduce new people into the campus in a safe and healthy way. So I would say the plans that we put in place were based on the best available information that we had at that time to keep people safe and healthy. As things have progressed, we've learned, we've adjusted protocols, but the key here is not just the testing, because the testing will pick it up. It doesn't prevent you from getting the disease. I think it's been the adherence to the guidelines that have been put in place. You know, people have been very compliant, wearing their masks, maintaining a social distance, you know, washing their hands, um, and taking precautions. And I think that that's been the key to the success so far here in the bubble. It's been a such a two-sided affair, too, when I think about it. You have all this planning and, and preparation for basketball games on one side. But then that health and safety component is so critical because you can't do one without the other. You can't have the games if you don't have the health and safety concerns buttoned up. How do you balance that as a league in terms of your considerations for both for the complete restart, not just for the playoffs and the finals, but you had 22 teams here and all that personnel that was here. <laughs> that's right. That's right. I would say we had to put health and safety first mm -hmm. because if we couldn't ensure an environment where whether it was five teams, 22 teams or 30 teams could come in and compete safely, then we knew we weren't going to do it. So the health and safety had to come first. We had to feel comfortable that we could create an environment where however many teams we were going to bring into here, we could keep them safe and healthy. And that was all done in conjunction with the Players Association and with our specialists and their specialists. So that was, without a doubt, first and foremost. But a close second was once we felt comfortable that we could do that was figuring out, okay, what was the right balance of the number of clubs that could come in here? You may recall, we had lots of debates about should it be all 30 teams? Mm -hmm. We ended up with 22 because those were the teams that were in contention, that were truly in contention at that time. And we thought that given where we were in the season, um, that was the most fair thing that we could do. Um, as opposed to just creating an arbitrary date right. um, in that line in the sand to give those teams who were in contention a real opportunity to compete for a playoff spot. And some great stories came out of it. Sure. Like the Thuns yeah. going 8-0 and almost playing themselves into contention. So it was, you know, the play-in tournament, which was a new concept and idea that we had been talking about that we implemented here to, I think, some success. Um, and that's one of those things that, our competition committee and our teams and us will look at implementing going forward, um, you know, based on the feedback that we got here. So it allowed us to do certain things, but first and foremost, always was the safety and health protocols and making sure we keep everybody safe. Yeah. 
I mean, that's the only sensible way I would imagine to do this. And I'm sure there are a lot of people studying what's going on here in preparation for whatever they're going to try and do. I'm curious as well, and I've heard Commissioner Adam Silver talking about there's a group already at work, hard at work on the next season and how you plan for that in an environment where there's such an unpredictable component that is the pandemic that we don't know exactly how you do that. How much of what we've seen, though, in arenas, in these multiple arenas that have been used here in the bubble, translates to how you're going to have to conduct games going forward, just based on what we know now? Yeah, I, I think a lot. I think a lot. I think we've learned a lot about the use of robotic cameras, mm-hmm. as an example. When you come into that arena, there's only one man camera um, that is down on the court level, and that person is stationed far away from the court. But we've got more cameras now covering the court than we ever have, and none of them are manned. So they're all robotic. They're all strategically placed and located. And we're able to capture the game in ways that we hadn't captured them before, yet doing it in a safe and healthy way using technology and using things like robotic cameras. And so those kinds of things are creating a unique experience for the fan at home. You know, the rail cam is a camera that I absolutely love. That floor level court side seat angle shows you the speed, the power, the quickness that these guys play at, get up and down the court. Um, That kind of thing might be difficult to do in a full arena, but it's one of those things that that we're looking at. How can you incorporate that kind of experience, if you will, um, in the future. And as the commissioner said, we are um, hoping to play, and our goal would be to play games in front of fans next season in home arenas. And we're trying everything that we can and looking at every model and learning from different leagues and looking at how they're operating, what they're doing, to try to figure out what the best way is for us to proceed next season. The fan experience, I, I would imagine, too, is, is so huge in terms of the future, how it's done. But I thought one of the, the really spectacular things I've seen is just how it's been incorporated with the family sections. It gives you a kind of a sense of how that can be done. How much of the vendor, the media, that small you know group of family and friends that have been allowed in, how much of that forecast what you can do on all those areas in terms of the future? I, I, I'm imagining you guys are learning a lot from just how it works with a small sample size right now. Absolutely, absolutely. I think we have been talking to all the guests that are here. I I remember um, even in the very first time that many of our players actually walked into that arena, I kind of gave them a tour of the arena before they ever practiced on it the first time they saw it. And we actually demoed the virtual fan experience for them. And out of that, you know, originally we were going to just have the home team control all of the virtual fans that were in the building. But the players, their feedback was, they said, is it possible behind our bench to have our team control that so that we could have our family members there? And you remember early on, the Celtics, you know, Deuce, uh, Jason Tatum's son, was, was behind him on the bench. And that was such a important thing for them. Yeah. particularly early on when their family members weren't there and we adjusted that and we said what a great idea it would be like you know if that team was on the road anyway they might have a family section behind them so we did that virtually in this case and not a guess 
of the family and team staff are actually there, you know, it does. It gives us a sense as to how you can get people in safely into the arenas, how you can seat them, socially distance, yet it's still a great seat and a great experience. So we're definitely learning um, about the fan experience in um, this sort of environment in the midst of a pandemic. Speaking of the pandemic, and I've, I've kind of grown accustomed to every decision I make now is, is based on like, how is this affected with what's going on, you know, with the pandemic? And, and it makes me wonder, you know, how hard is it to plan when it, that's so unpredictable? I mean, I know you can only, like you said, you can only prepare for so many different variables, but this thing is so crazy. We can't even plot the rest of our year, like at my, you know, as a family, how do you plan for so much with, with that unpredictable nature of the virus being out there? Sekou, if you recall, when we made the decision to come to Orlando, Orlando had one of the lowest case rates of coronavirus in the country. When we arrived here in July, it had right. one of the highest in just that short amount of time. And I think the cases now in more than half the states are starting to increase. But what we tried to do and what we did do in the case of Orlando is we didn't come down here assuming that that case rate would stay low. Right. We actually built the bubble for the worst case scenario. And so when the virus was raging in Florida and raging in Orlando, and it was the epicenter of the coronavirus situation here, we felt like we had done everything that we could to build a system and to build a set of protocols um, to ensure that even in that environment, we could keep people healthy and safe. And we got through that. Again, we still got a week to go or less. Um, and so we're not in the clear yet, but that's all you can do is, is plan and try to anticipate based on the information that you have at that time what things you can do to try to keep people you know, safe and healthy. I had a really intimate heart-to-heart conversation with my wife when we were deciding, you know, like, are you going to go? You know, because as soon as the bubble was announced, she's like, do you have to go? And I was like, I don't know. I'm going to talk to my boss. We'll figure it out, but we'll, we'll sit down and talk about it. For you as a former collegiate athlete, a guy who understands the hard work and the grind that players put into just the season when you have a finite amount of time to compete. What was going through your mind knowing what the players are dealing with in terms of these guys are this, they're not all going to play 17 years like LeBron James. So they cherish the opportunity to compete and play in ways that the average person might not understand. I'm wondering what you were thinking about from that perspective as we were getting ready to come down here. That's right. I I think about the enormous sacrifice of our players, of our teams, the coaches, the staff that are down here, our employees who have been down here, the media like you, Sekou, that that have sacrificed so much to cover this game that we all love and that people love around the world. And I think, you know, those sacrifices do not go unnoticed. And I thank people all the time for the sacrifices that they're making for many of the players and people down here, myself included, you too, this is the longest amount of time that we've ever spent away from our loved ones and our family. You know, and I think for our players and the teams who are down here, they do it for the love of the game. They do it because they, as you said, you know, they were a good way of the portion through this season. 
Right. They put in so much time and effort through this season, and it speaks to everybody's commitment and dedication to the sport and to their craft that they wanted to finish this out. And I think to see now the intensity at which the Lakers and the Heat are competing on that court, it just shows. I mean, both teams have been here now for 90 days on campus, 90 days straight. And that's what you're seeing now is a passion, a love for the game, and having made enormous sacrifices to get to this point. And I know I appreciate it, and so many of us appreciate what the people in this community have done to come together and make to make those sacrifices. Absolutely. Um, I know everybody has their own coping mechanisms for being uncomfortable, for being outside of their norm. As I've mentioned to our listeners and our producers, I have taken a bike riding after a 30-year hiatus from two wheels. It didn't go as without some crashes here and there. I do have scabs on my left knee from, from an early fall, but I've been reasonably safe since then. What did you learn about your tolerance for, for being uncomfortable being down here? And, and how did you cope just as, just as everybody else down here has had to figure out what can I do to kind of ease my mind about what we're dealing with? <laughs> it's a great point. You know, I, I do think the mental wellness part of this is important. And you have to find ways to stay mentally fit. And, you know, say, could I see you out there every day? You're on the bike, <laughs> but I'm walking. And to me, that's, that's my release. That's my outlet. I enjoy walking. And so I enjoy seeing you out on the path and, Hell yeah. and, and passing other people. And I think um, that helps a lot. It helps just to get outside, get some fresh air yeah. um, and, and to clear my mind a little bit. And so that's been one of my routines and uh, something that I, I just have to do every single day. Yeah, yeah, it makes sense. I, I wasn't sure how to how to deal with it, but I think everybody adjusts. Chris Haynes of Yahoo and I were riding and talking about this one day. What is this going to look like historically, 10, 20 years from now? And I think Chris is working on a book, by the way. So I think he's already crafting his memoirs. He's been writing stuff down and, and getting ready. But how do you think we'll explain this? you know, once we get some distance from the bubble, like, I don't, I, I haven't figured out how I'm going to do that. But I mean, I'm wondering, what do you tell somebody when they say, so tell me about the bubble? I think it's a great point, Seku, and I'm not sure. The one thing I do think people will look back on, and it's hard to do it now while you're in the moment and you're here. I think at some point we're going to look back and go, that was really extraordinary. It was extraordinary because, you know, in the midst of this pandemic, for us to find a way to push forward and to move forward and to find a way to continue our business, to continue the conversation, by the way, to promote social justice and racial equity. Yeah. I think people will look back on that as one of the big legacies of this restart too. You know, we set out at the beginning of the restart to use this platform and to use the restart as a way to continue the conversation to promote social justice. And our players, our teams have done that in spades and so proud of them and the teams and the league for the work that we've done there. And I think, you know, this is such a unique moment in time. And I think we will all look back. Those of us who have had the fortune to be here to look back at it 
in an extraordinary way of what we collectively were able to accomplish, given all the sacrifices I mentioned earlier that people had to go through. I feel like you, to some extent, where it is a little bit hard to start reflecting on it when you're in it. But I do think that people will look at it years from now and go, that was pretty extraordinary. Yeah, an amazing time. And really, when I think about from March 11th and the leadership that's been shown by the league, by yourself and obviously Commissioner Adam Silver and everybody else, I never worried about where we'd be on the other side of it, just because I understood that, that the league would take a leadership position, not just with the pandemic, but also when the social justice movement kicked off after George Floyd's death. I never worried about where the league would be because of the track record of being leaders and being advocates and the way the league has always positioned itself in the right place. So I appreciate your time, Mark, and uh, look for us out there on the trail. I'm sure we'll be out. We got a few more days left, if nothing else. Absolutely, Sekuno. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate all you're doing here and the sacrifices that you're making as well. So thank you very much. Thank you, sir. Mark Tatum, the Deputy Commissioner and Chief Operating Officer of the NBA, joining us here on the Hangtime Podcast. We are not gone from the bubble yet. Make sure you tune in. Continue to tune in. We got more games to play and more stories to tell. 